you've got your Bibles, I hope that you do, open them up to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there is a hardback black Bible in the, under the chair in front of you. If you're using that Bible, we're on page 5. We're at the beginning of the Bible. Since January, we have been in a series in the Gospel of Luke that we've been calling the Gospel of Luke, good news for everyone. Um, but for today and for the next seven weeks, we're going to take a break from that series to spend some time in the Old Testament. This summer, we're going to be looking at some of the most popular stories of the Old Testament together. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up learning many of these Bible stories. Noah and the ark, Abraham sacrificing Isaac, Moses and the Exodus, Samson, Ruth, many of the stories of David, uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. I think a lot of us have grown up and we've, we've heard many of these stories in the Bible together. But sadly, that's what they've become for us. They've become stories, exciting accounts of people long ago that, that seem at, at best to have taken on the quality of fables that are meant to teach us some moral lesson, and at worst, in many cases, we treat them as if they're just ancient myths, great stories without any historicity or value beyond entertainment. But here's the thing. This is God's word. And we know that it is true. We know that it's without error. We know that these things have, have not been written just to entertain us. We know that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God would be equipped for every good work. The Apostle Paul told us that. But the Apostle Paul also told us that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The stories of the Old Testament were written so that we could have hope. So that we might know who our God is. So that we might know how he wants us to live. And so this summer, we're going to revisit some of these stories. And we're going to see that they're more than a story. We're going to see that they're teaching us that God is at work in our lives. And today we're going to begin with the story of Noah. Now, we all know and love the story of Noah, right? The, the world was overrun by sin, so God decided to destroy the world with a flood. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God, so, Noah told, or so God told Noah to build an ark, and when that ark was complete, Noah filled it with animals, and two by two, he filled the ark until it was full, and then as he filled the ark, the rains came down for 40 days and 40 nights, the floods came up, and they lived in that floating menagerie for about a year until the waters receded, and then the ark came to rest on the top of a mountain, and everyone left the ark, and God promised never to destroy the earth with a flood again, and to seal that promise, he put a rainbow in the sky. That's the story of Noah. And for many of us, the story of Noah has become nothing more than our explanation for why we have rainbows in the sky. But as we look at it today, we're going to see that there is so much more here for us than that. You see, the story of Noah encourages us to remember an important truth that gives us hope in our present world. The story of Noah reminds us that where sin earns wrath, God provides rescue. And that's our main idea as we're looking at the story of Noah together today. That's the main idea of the story of Noah. The main thrust of this story isn't the massive boat that Noah built. 
It's not the miraculous way that he filled it full of animals. The story of Noah reminds us that God takes sin seriously. Our sin earns his just wrath. But even in that wrath, we see God's mercy on full display as he provides rescue for those who walk with him. That's what we're going to see as we're looking at the story of Noah together. Where sin earns wrath, God provides rescue. So with that in mind, let's dive right in. Genesis chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 5 and we're going to go to chapter 7, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heaven also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. 
of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we take some time to look at your word, I ask that you would speak to us and hear what this is teaching us. Help us to see our sin the way you see our sin. Help us to understand that our sin separates us from you, and so you hate sin, and you righteously pour out wrath for sin. But Father, help us to also know that we have hope, because where there is sin that earns wrath, you offer mercy and grace and forgiveness. Help us to see this and then take it, internalize it, and live it out. Help us to see that the story of Noah, this account that happened so long ago that it feels like it's a fairy tale, help us to understand that this is so much greater, that it was written for us so that we might have hope. That while Noah experienced your grace firsthand, so can we today. Work in us today, we ask. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Have you ever found yourself coming into a story in the middle of the story? Maybe you walk up on a conversation in their mid-conversation, or maybe you walk into the room while your spouse or your kids are, are watching a movie and it's, it's halfway through the movie. When that happens, it can be hard to understand everything that's going on in the story. You either start to ha- have to start asking questions to bring yourself up to speed, and if it's anything like my household, that drives everybody around you nuts, or you have to just kind of smile and nod and pretend like you know what's going on, even though you're pretty much clueless. Those are the options, but there's a danger with that second option, because if you come into the story halfway through, and you're missing important details, that can lead you to miss the point. You can easily come to the wrong conclusions, and all because you're just coming in halfway through. Almost always, you need to know the whole story in order to understand the point of the story, and that's especially true with the story of Noah. You see, often when we think about the story of Noah, we do just that. We come in at the middle of the story. We enter the story all the way down in verse 14 where the Lord tells Noah to make this ark of gopher wood and we completely skip the reason why he's building the ark in the first place. But if we want to understand what this is teaching us, if, if we want to take hold of the hope that this story has to offer for us, we have to look at the whole story here in Genesis. And as we do, I'd like you to see that this story begins with our sin. Take a look beginning there in verse 5. The Bible says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And then if you skip down to verses 11 and 12, the Bible tells us, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now as, as we're reading this, we're just ten generations removed from Adam in the Garden of Eden. 
The biblical account says that the events we're looking at here took place about 1,500 years after that first sin in the Garden of Eden, where once perfection reigned in God's creation, now we have corruption, now sin reigns. In just 10 generations, sin has taken such a hold that wickedness reigns across the entire planet. People are living for themselves. They have no regard for God. They don't care what he's instructed or commanded them to do. All their ways are evil. Every intention of their hearts, the Bible says, was only evil continually. This is how the story of Noah begins. It begins with our sin. It begins by presenting us with the reality that our sin nature leads us in only one direction. Following that first sin in the Garden of Eden, our sin nature leads us to sin. It leads us to sin against God and against each other. Left to ourselves, our sin nature leads us to live solely for ourselves, and ultimately that spirals into selfishness and anger and hate and violence, which is what has happened here in Genesis chapter 6. As we begin the story of Noah, the, the picture here is incredibly bleak. It's so bad that verse 6 tells us that the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now, when the Bible says that God regretted that he had made man, that, that's not saying that God had made a mistake. This is talking about his emotional response as his heart is grieving over the sin that has overtaken humanity. The sin of mankind in Noah's day grieved God's heart. And while we may not be inclined to think about God and think about our sin that way, we should. Because our sin grieves God's heart. I, I think when we think about God and when we think about our sin, we think of punishment. Right? We think of wrath. We think of eternity separated from God in hell. But this is telling us that God grieves our sin. Our sin hurts God's heart. And I just can't help but wonder, do we think about it this way? We have a heavenly father who loves us, who sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. He loves us. But when we willfully sin against him, do we recognize that we're hurting our loving father's heart? Now, I, I don't think any of us would intentionally hurt our earthly father's heart. I don't think any of us would intentionally try to wound or, or cause pain to our earthly fathers. But what this is telling us is that when we sin, that's what we're doing to our heavenly father. But more than just grieving God's heart, our sin incurs his wrath. I know we don't like to talk about the wrath of God. But God's wrath and God's love are intimately connected. Yes, God loves us. He loves us. He absolutely does. The scriptures, the whole council of scriptures from Genesis to Revelation tell us that God loves us. But scriptures also tell us that God is holy and righteous. Which means that he cannot abide sin in his presence which means that our sin separates us from God, which is why God hates sin. 
And wrath is merely God's intense hatred of sin. Wrath and love are intimately connected. And any of you who are parents, you understand this deeply. Like, listen, I've got two daughters, and I love my daughters to death. I love them deeply. I think I probably love Katie and Kylie more than I love anybody else I've met on the earth. But if someone were to come and try and harm my daughters, they would experience a wrath from me that apart from the intervention of the Holy Spirit in my life would result in me in jail or worse. Right? Wrath and love are intimately connected And so while our sin grieves God's heart, it also incurs wrath, which is what we see in verse 7. Take a look. The Bible says, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. In a world that is filled with sin, polluted by sin, man's sin brings judgment. That's what we're seeing here. What we're seeing here is that sin earns wrath. If you're familiar with your Bible, though, this shouldn't surprise you. After all, Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. What our sin earns us is death. Our sin earns wrath. And so here in Genesis, as the world is completely corrupted by sin, God determines to bring his judgment. And what I'd like you to see as God deals with sin is that there are no half measures. There are none. There's no like, I'm going to go halfway. Look at verse 7 again. The Bible says, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I'm sorry that I've made them. This is a complete reversal of God's creative work. Even the way he tells us this tells us that. The Hebrew word that's translated there as blot out, maha in Hebrew, it means to wipe clean. How many of you remember growing up the Etch-a-Sketch toy, right? Like red Etch-a-Sketch thing, little knobs filled with sand, and you can turn the knobs and and you make a pattern, right? When you finish that pattern, what, what do you do? When it's time for the next one, you shake it, And it completely wipes it clean, right? It completely erases it. You're all set to start from scratch again. That's what maha means here. That's what God has determined to do with all of creation. But more than just wiping the slate of creation clean, look at the order in which he's going to do it. He says man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. Now, now we don't have time to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and look at the order of creation, but what he's saying here, the order in which he's listed this off, it's the exact opposite order of creation on the fifth and sixth days. What this is telling us is that God is undoing his creation. The curse of sin has so infested all of God's creation that God decides there can be no half measures. And as we see that, It should raise our attention to that reality, that this is how God sees sin. This is how God deals with sin. There are no half measures with God. There's no big sin and little sin with God. All sin is just that. It's sin. It's rebellion against our loving Heavenly Father. Now, I I know we don't like to think about it that way. 
We like to qualify and quantify sin. And I'm, I'm saying we on purpose here because I know my heart. My heart likes to think about sin as like, oh, that's just a little thing. It's not that big a deal. But that's what we like to do with our sin, right? We like, we like to think about it and think, well, this is no big deal. This won't bother God. Everything's going to be okay. We like to convince ourselves, as, as long as I'm not doing any of those big sins, God's going to forgive me. It's not going to upset God. But look at the lengths that God is going to here. Because as we look at the lengths to which God is going to go to deal with sin here in Genesis, what we're seeing is that there's no half measures with God when he deals with sin. We shouldn't treat sin lightly. We shouldn't play around with sin, which is why the Bible tells us over and over and over again that as followers of Jesus, we are supposed to put sin to death. Romans 6, 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Colossians 3, 5, and 6, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Galatians 5.24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I could keep going all day long, but you get the idea. If you're a Christian, if you claim the name of Christ, you put your sin to death because there are no half measures. God takes sin seriously, and so should we. Because what we're seeing here is that sin earns wrath. Listen. I know this is dark. I know this is heavy. But this is reality. Our sin earns wrath. Overcome and infested with sin, God in righteous judgment was preparing to pour out his wrath on the earth. But even where sin earns wrath, God extends grace and mercy. And this is the hope that we find in the story of Noah. Take a look at verse 8. The Bible says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. As this first section of the story of Noah is coming to an end, it closes not in despair, but with this spark of hope where the rest of mankind has stirred up God's righteous wrath, Noah found favor. But all of that favor is God's grace and mercy. In fact, the, the Hebrew word that's translated favor there in verse 8, hein, is also translated grace all throughout the Old Testament. God extends grace to Noah and that becomes even clearer when we see how verse 8 is set before verse 9. Now, we all know Moses wrote the book of Genesis, right? So the order that Moses is telling us this here, as he writes the account of Noah, it matters. Verse 8 says that Noah found favor. He received grace in the eyes of the Lord. And only then does verse 9 tell us that Noah was a righteous man. Noah was blameless in his generation, that Noah walked with God. Now, just for a moment, imagine those two verses were reversed. 
Imagine if verse 9 came first, and then we saw verse 8. If, Mo, if Moses had written that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, that Noah walked with God, and then he told us that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. If that's the order it had been written, the implication would clearly be that Noah had somehow earned that grace that God extended him. But that's not what we're told. Verse 8 tells us that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's not until after Noah received grace that we're told in verse 9 that Noah was righteous, that he was blameless in his generation, that he walked with God. The reason why Noah was a righteous man, the reason why he was blameless in his generation, the reason why Noah walked with God is that God in his providence had chosen to extend grace to Noah. Righteousness for Noah, just like righteousness for you or for me, it requires supernatural intervention in his life. It requires God to act first. But that's the beauty of grace. God offers it as a free gift. Think back to Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. What our sin earns us is wrath. It earns us death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The free gift is grace and mercy in Jesus. And yet we always try to earn the gift. We always try to reverse the order. We think that if we can just be good enough, if we can just do enough good, that God will give us his grace as a reward for our efforts. But that's not what the Bible is teaching us. What we're seeing in the Bible is that even where sin earns wrath, God extends grace and mercy. He rescues us from the penalty of our sin. And we see that here in Noah. As God prepares to pour out his wrath on sin, he extends grace and mercy to Noah. He tells Noah the plan. He gives Noah instructions to build this ark that will rescue him from the wrath that's coming. And Noah obeys. D did you see that? There at the end of chapter 6, in, in verse 22, the Bible says Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And, and then we go to chapter 7, and as God gives instructions to Noah, verse 5 in chapter 7 says, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. And then more instructions come, and verse 16 tells us that they went into the ark as God had commanded him. Noah's response to God's grace is obedience, because Noah understood what God had to offer. I mean, can, can you imagine what this must have been like for Noah? Like, the task that God had set before Noah must have seemed completely overwhelming. It must have seemed completely impossible. The Lord told him to build this massive ark, fill it with food, fill it with animals, two by two. All of these instructions that God had given Noah in chapters 6 and 7 must have seemed overwhelmingly impossible to Noah. And yet, over and over and over again, we're told that Noah did what God commanded him. And as we see this, it's teaching us something important. 
It's teaching us that our response to grace is obedience. When we receive forgiveness through Christ Jesus, Christ is going to call us to live differently. He's going to call us to go through life differently. And the reality is that kind of living, the kind of living he calls us to live, might seem impossible. It might seem overwhelmingly impossible to live the life that Christ has called you to live. But the only right response to God's grace in your life is obedience. And the beauty of the way that God works is that when we're willing to die to self, when we're willing to submit our lives to Christ as Lord, when we strive to obey his commands, the beauty is that he enables us to do it. Looking back here in Genesis chapter 6 and 7, did you notice that the text doesn't tell us how any of this happened? It doesn't. It doesn't tell us if Noah had help. It doesn't tell us if Noah and his family were the only ones to build the ark. Maybe he hired other people to help him build it. We, we don't know. Maybe he had supernatural intervention and help. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us how Noah filled the ark with all those animals. It almost seems certain that God had intervened in that. All we're told, though, is, is that Noah obeyed and it happened. That's all we're told. Noah obeyed and God's plan fell into place. Our response to grace is obedience. And when Noah's obedience was complete and the ark was finished, chapter 7, verse 16 says that the Lord shut him in. The rains fell. The fountains of the deep burst forth. And for 40 days and 40 nights, the flood increased. Every person, every creature that had the breath of life in its lungs outside the ark was destroyed. But God remembered Noah and the ark. And he caused a wind to blow and dry the land. And eventually, after a year and 10 days, 370 days, Noah and his family and all the animals left the ark. And as the ark sat empty, I want you to see how Noah responded. So flip over to Genesis chapter 8, beginning at verse 20. The Bible says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. God rescued Noah and his family. And Noah's response was worship. He offered sacrifices to the Lord. But even in his worship, even with the sacrifices, sin was still a problem. Sin was still in Noah's heart. God said the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. But still, even in their sin, God blessed Noah and his sons. 
And so as the account of Noah draws to an end in chapter 9, verse 1 tells us that God blessed Noah and his sons. And he said to him, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then God made his covenant with Noah. He made his covenant with Noah's sons. He promised never to destroy the earth by a flood again. And the sign of that covenant was a rainbow. So that every time he sees the rainbow, God would remember his promise to Noah. And every time we see a rainbow, we would remember God's promise as well. And that's where we usually end the story of Noah. We end it with the happily ever after. But that's not where the story ends in Genesis. In fact, the story continues and it gives an epilogue of sorts that reminds us that sin is still a problem and so rescue will still be required. I'm sure you've seen one of those movies where as the movie comes to an end, it fades to black and it gives you a couple of lines that tell you what happens to the characters in the movie, right? Well, that's sort of what Genesis does here. It tells us what happens to Noah. And this is the part they don't tell you in Sunday school. The end of chapter 9 tells us that Noah became a man who worked the land. He planted a vineyard. He got drunk. He passed out naked in his tent. That's what happens to Noah. His youngest son, Ham, walks in on him, sees him naked. Ham goes out. He tells his brothers what he saw. And so Shem and Japheth, they walk into the tent backwards, holding a blanket, and they cover up their father. And when Noah woke up from his drunken hibernation and found out what had happened, he responded by blessing Shem and Japheth and cursing the family of Ham. And so the only time in the entire account in Genesis that we hear words coming out of Noah's mouth, it is a response to his shame from his sin. That's how the story of Noah ends. It ends by reminding us that sin is always at hand. And it sets us up to know that we're going to need rescue again because our sin earns wrath. And so many, many years later, God sent that rescue. But this time that rescue came in the form of his son, Jesus, who like the ark sheltered us from God's wrath by taking it on himself at the cross. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death in our place for our sin. And when we repent of our sin and place our faith in him, he gives us salvation. He sets us free from the penalty of sin. He reconciles us to God. The story of Noah doesn't end on a happily ever after. But it does point us to Christ. And in Christ, we find salvation. In Christ, we find our happily ever after because in Christ, we find forgiveness and eternal life. The story of Noah is more than a story. It was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might find hope. There's hope for us in this. There's hope for our broken world. Because no matter how broken and sinful this world may be, we know that God is faithful to keep his promises. And we're reminded of that in Noah. We're reminded that where sin earns wrath, God provides rescue. 
so we can take that message and we can share it with a world that needs to know. The days that we're in today, in many ways, might be very much like the days of Noah. But that does not mean we do not have hope. Because God has acted. Can we pray? Father, I thank you for this word of encouragement that we find right there in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. I thank you. I thank you that where our sin earns wrath, you provide rescue through Jesus, your son. Father, as we've been looking at this story together, I ask that you would help us to recognize how serious our sin is. Father, teach us to hate our sin. Not because we're afraid of punishment, not because we're afraid of wrath, but because our sin breaks your heart. My sin, Father, it breaks your heart. Help me to hate it. Help me to want to put it to death on a daily basis. And even in that, Father, would you help us to prevent, or prevent us from, from becoming prideful? Where we think, look at me, I'm, I'm, I'm fighting sin. And we stop relying on you. Father, help us to know that in you we have hope. In you, we have life. In you, we have joy available forevermore. Help us to lean into the rescue that's offered and to take hold of it and live for you. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your beautiful name I pray. Amen.